After abandoning a life of dissipation, the Baron settles down. But this version of simple domesticity isn't what he had in mind. Charles Dickens, today on the Classic Tales Podcast. Welcome to this vintage episode of the Classic Tales Podcast. Thank you for listening. Two vintage episodes are released each week, on Mondays and Wednesdays, so be sure to check your feed regularly. New episodes will be available every Friday. Please help us to keep the vintage episodes coming by going to classictalesaudiobooks.com and becoming a supporter. Thank you so much. Dickens' first serialized novel, The Pickwick Papers, used a significant amount of peripheral short fiction to bulk up the length of the story, or as Dickens said, make length. In Nicholas Nickleby, he did it again, inserting a short story in his serialized title. The Baron of Grogsvig can be found in Chapter 6. Considered a satire of a gothic tale, hopefully the charm of Dickens is still shining strong. And now, The Baron of Grogsvig by Charles Dickens. The Baron von Koeldwethout of Grogsvig in Germany was as likely a young baron as you would wish to see. I needn't say that he lived in a castle, because that's of course. Neither need I say that he lived in an old castle, for what German baron ever lived in a new one? There were many strange circumstances connected with this venerable building, among which not the least startling and mysterious were, that when the wind blew, it rumbled in the chimneys, or even howled among the trees in the neighbouring forest, and that when the moon shone, she found her way through certain small loopholes in the wall, and actually made some parts of the wide halls and galleries quite light, while she left others in gloomy shadow. I believe that one of the baron's ancestors, being short of money, had inserted a dagger in a gentleman who called one night to ask his way, and it was supposed that these miraculous occurrences took place in consequence. And yet I hardly know how that could have been either, because the baron's ancestor, who was an amiable man, felt very sorry afterwards for having been so rash, and laying violent hands upon a quantity of stone and timber which belonged to a weaker baron, built a chapel as an apology, and so took a receipt from heaven in full of all demands. Talking of the baron's ancestor puts me in mind of the baron's great claims to respect on the score of his pedigree. I am afraid to say, I am sure, how many ancestors the baron had, but I know that he had a great many more than any more man of his time, and I only wish that he had lived in these latter days, that he might have had more. It is very hard to think upon the great men of past centuries that they should have come into the world so soon because a man who was born three or four hundred years ago cannot reasonably be expected to have had as many relations before him as a man who was born now. <laughs> the last man, whoever he is, and he may be a cobbler or some low vulgar dog for all we know, will have a longer pedigree than the greatest nobleman now alive, and I contend that this is not fair. Well, but the Baron von Kulvertout of Grogsvig. 
He was a fine, swarthy fellow, with dark hair and large mustachios, who rode a hunting in clothes of Lincoln green, with russet boots on his feet, and a bugle slung over his shoulder like the guard of a long stage. When he blew this bugle, four and twenty other gentlemen of inferior rank in Lincoln green, a little coarser, and russet boots with a little thicker soles, turned out directly, and away galloped the whole train, with spears in their hands like lacquered area railings, to hunt down the boars, or perhaps encounter a bear, in which latter course the baron killed him first and greased his whiskers with him afterwards. This was a merry life for the baron of Grogsvig, and a merrier still for the baron's retainers, who drank Rhine wine every night till they fell under the table, and then had the bottles on the floor and called for pipes. Never were such jolly, roistering, rollicking, merry-making blades as the jovial crew of Grogsvig. But the pleasures of the table, or the pleasures of under the table, require a little variety, especially when the same five-and-twenty people sit daily down to the same board to discuss the same subjects and tell the same stories. The baron grew weary and wanted excitement. He took to quarrelling with his gentlemen, and tried knocking two or three of them every day after dinner. This was a pleasant change at first, but it became monotonous after a week or so, and the baron felt quite out of sorts and cast about in despair for some new amusement. One night, after a day's sport in which he had outdone Nimrod or Gillingwater, and slaughtered another fine bear— and brought him home in triumph, the Baron von Kulvertaut sat moodily at the head of his table, eyeing the smoky roof of the hall with a discontented aspect. He swallowed huge bumpers of wine, but the more he swallowed, the more he frowned. The gentleman, who had been honoured with the dangerous distinction of sitting on his right and left, imitated him to a miracle in the drinking, and frowned at each other. "'I will!' cried the baron suddenly, smiting the table with his right hand and twirling his moustache with his left. "'Fill to the lady of Grogsvig!' The four-and-twenty Lincoln Greens turned pale, with the exception of their four-and-twenty noses, which were unchangeable. "'I said to the lady of Grogsvig!' repeated the baron, looking round the board. "'To the lady of Grogsvig!' shouted the Lincoln Greens, and down their four-and-twenty throats went four-and-twenty imperial pints of such rare old hock that they smacked their eight-and-forty lips and winked again. "'The fair daughter of the Baron von Svillenhausen,' said Kulvertaut, condescending to explain. "'We will demand her in marriage of her father, ere the sun goes down to-morrow. If he refuse our suit, we will cut off his nose. A hoarse murmur arose from the company. Every man touched first the hilt of his sword, and then the tip of his nose with appalling significance. What a pleasant thing filial piety is to contemplate. If the daughter of the Baron von Swillenhausen had pleaded a preoccupied heart, or fallen at her father's feet and corned them in salt tears, or only fainted away and complimented the old gentleman in frantic ejaculations, the odds were a hundred to one, but Swillenhausen Castle would have been turned out at window, or rather the baron turned out at window, and the castle demolished. 
The damsel held her peace, however, when an early messenger bore the request of von Kulvertaut next morning, and modestly retired to her chamber, from the casement of which she watched the coming of the suitor and his retinue. She was no sooner assured that the horseman with the large mustachios was her proffered husband, than she hastened to her father's presence, and expressed her readiness to sacrifice herself to secure his peace. The venerable baron caught his child to his arms, and shed a wink of joy. There was a great feasting at the castle that day. The four-and-twenty Lincoln Greens of von Kuldwetout exchanged vows of eternal friendship with twelve Lincoln Greens of von Swillenhausen, and promised the old baron that they would drink his wine till all was blue, meaning probably until their whole countenances had acquired the same tint as their noses. Everybody slapped everybody else's back when the time for parting came, and the Baron von Kulvethout and his followers rode gaily home. For six mortal weeks the bears and boars had a holiday. The houses of Kulvethout and Swillenhausen were united, the spears rusted, and the Baron's bugle grew hoarse for lack of blowing. Those were great times for the four-and-twenty, but alas, their high and palmy days had taken boots to themselves, and were already walking off. "'My dear,' said the baroness. "'My love,' said the baron. "'Those coarse, noisy men.' Wh "'Which, mum?' said the baron, starting. The baroness pointed from the window at which they stood to the courtyard beneath, where the unconscious Lincoln Greens were taking a copious stirrup cup, preparatory to issuing forth after a bore or two. "'My hunting train, ma'am,' said the baron. "'Disband them, love,' murmured the baroness. "'Disband them?' cried the baron in amazement. "'To please me, love,' replied the baroness. "'To please the devil, ma'am,' answered the baron. Whereupon the baroness uttered a great cry and swooned away at the baron's feet. Oh, what could the baron do? He called for the lady's maid and roared for the doctor, and then, rushing into the yard, kicked the two Lincoln Greens, who were the most used to it, and cursing the others all round, bade them go, but never mind where. I don't know the German for it, or I would put it delicately that way. It is not for me to say by what means or by what degrees some wives manage to keep down some husbands as they do, although I may have my private opinion on the subject, and may think that no member of Parliament ought to be married, inasmuch as three married members out of every four must vote according to their wives' consciences, if there be such things, and not according to their own. All I need say just now is that the Baroness von Kulvertaut somehow or other acquired great control over the Baron von Kulvertaut, and that little by little, and bit by bit, and day by day, and year by year, the Baron got the worst of some disputed question, or was slyly unhorsed from some old hobby, and that by the time he was a fat, hearty fellow of forty-eight or thereabouts, he had no feasting, no revelry, no hunting train, and no hunting— nothing in short that he liked or used to have, and that, although he was as fierce as a lion and as bold as brass, he was decidedly snubbed and put down by his own lady in his own castle of Grogsvig. Nor was this the whole extent of the baron's misfortunes. 
about a year after his nuptials, there came into the world a lusty young baron, in whose honour a great many fireworks were let off, and a great many dozens of wine drunk. But next year there came a young baroness, and next year another young baron, and so on every year, either a baron or baroness, and one year both together, until the baron found himself the father of a small family of twelve. Upon every one of these anniversaries, the venerable baroness von Swillenhausen was nervously sensitive for the well-being of her child, the baroness von Kulvertaut, and although it was not found that the good lady ever did anything material towards contributing to her child's recovery, still she made it a point of duty to be as nervous as possible at the castle of Grogswig, and to divide her time between moral observations on the baron's housekeeping and bewailing the hard lot of her unhappy daughter. And if the baron of Grogsvig, a little hurt and irritated at this, took heart and ventured to suggest that his wife was at least no worse off than the wives of other barons, the baroness von Swillenhausen begged all persons to take notice that nobody but she sympathized with her dear daughter's sufferings, upon which her relations and friends remarked that to be sure she did cry a great deal more than her son-in-law, and that if there were a hard-hearted brute alive it was that Baron of Grogswig. The poor Baron bore it all as long as he could, and when he could bear it no longer, lost his appetite and his spirits, and sat himself gloomily and dejectedly down. But there were worse troubles yet in store for him, and as they came on, his melancholy and sadness increased. Times changed, he got into debt. The Grogsvig coffers ran low, though the Swillenhausen family had looked upon them as inexhaustible, and just when the Baroness was on the point of making a thirteenth addition to the family pedigree, von Kuldvertout discovered that he had no means of replenishing them. "'I don't see what is to be done,' said the Baron. "'I think I'll kill myself.' This was a bright idea. The baron took an old hunting-knife from a cupboard hard by, and having sharpened it on his boot, made what boys call an offer at his throat. Damn, said the baron, stopping short. Perhaps it's not sharp enough. The baron sharpened it again, and made another offer, when his hand was arrested by a loud screaming among the young barons and baronesses who had a nursery in an upstairs tower with iron bars outside the window to prevent their tumbling out into the moat. "'If I had been a bachelor,' said the baron, sighing, "'I might have done it fifty times over, without being interrupted. Hello, put a flask of wine and the largest pipe in the little vaulted room behind the hall.' One of the domestics, in a very kind manner, executed the baron's order in the course of half an hour or so, and von Kuldvertout, being apprised thereof, strode to the vaulted room, the walls of which, being of dark shining wood, gleamed in the light of the blazing logs which were piled upon the hearth. The bottle and pipe were ready, and upon the whole the place looked very comfortable. "'Leave the lamp,' said the baron. "'Anything else, my lord?' inquired the domestic. "'The room,' replied the baron. "'The domestic obeyed, and the baron locked the door. "'I'll smoke a last pipe,' 
said the baron. And then I'll be off. So, putting the knife upon the table until he wanted it, and tossing off a goodly measure of wine, the Lord of Grogsvig threw himself back in his chair, stretched his legs out before the fire, and puffed away. He thought about a great many things, about his present troubles and past days of bachelorship, and about the Lincoln Greens, long since dispersed up and down the country, no one knew whither, with the exception of two who had been unfortunately beheaded, and four who had killed themselves with drinking. His mind was running upon bears and boars, when, in the process of draining his glass to the bottom, he raised his eyes and saw, for the first time, and with unbounded astonishment, that he was not alone. No, he was not, for on the opposite side of the fire there sat with folded arms a wrinkled, hideous figure, with deeply sunk and bloodshot eyes, and an immensely long, cadaverous face, shadowed by jagged and matted locks of coarse black hair. He wore a kind of tunic of a dull bluish colour, which the baron observed, on regarding it attentively, was clasped or ornamented down the front with coffin handles. His legs, too, were encased in coffin plates, as though in armour, and over his left shoulder he wore a short, dusky cloak, which seemed made of a remnant of some pall. He took no notice of the baron, but was intently eyeing the fire. Hello, said the baron, stamping his foot to attract attention. Hello, replied the stranger, moving his eyes towards the baron, but not his face or himself. What now? What now? replied the baron, nothing daunted by his hollow voice and lustreless eyes. I should ask that question. How did you get here? Through the door, replied the figure. What are you? says the baron. A man, replied the figure. I don't believe it, says the baron. Disbelieve it, then, says the figure. I will, rejoined the baron. The figure looked at the bold baron of Grogsvig for some time, and then said familiarly, There's no coming over you, I see. I'm not a man. What are you, then? asked the baron. A genius, replied the figure. You don't look much like one returned the baron scornfully. I am the genius of despair and suicide, said the apparition. Now you know me. With these words the apparition turned towards the baron, as if composing himself for a talk, and what was very remarkable was that he threw his cloak aside and, displaying a stake which was run through the centre of his body, pulled it out with a jerk and laid it on the table as composedly as if it had been a walking-stick. Now, said the figure, glancing at the hunting-knife, are you ready for me? Not quite, rejoined the baron. I must finish this pipe first. Look sharp, then, said the figure. You seem in a hurry, said the baron. Why, yes, I am, answered the figure. They are doing a pretty brisk business in my way over in England and France just now, and my time is a good deal taken up. Do you drink? said the baron, touching the bottle with the bowl of his pipe. Nine times out of ten, 
and then very hard. Rejoined the figure dryly. Never in moderation? asked the baron. Never, replied the figure with a shudder. That breeds cheerfulness. The baron took another look at his new friend, whom he thought an uncommonly queer customer, and at length inquired whether he took any active part in such little proceedings as that which he had in contemplation. No, replied the figure evasively, but I am always present. Just to see fair, I suppose, said the baron. Just that, replied the figure, playing with his stake and examining the ferrule. Be as quick as you can, will you? For there's a young gentleman who is afflicted with too much money and leisure wanting me now, I find. Going to kill himself because he has too much money? exclaimed the baron, quite tickled. Ha, 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 that's a good one. This was the first time the baron had laughed for many a long day. I say, expostulated the figure, looking very much scared. Don't do that again. Why not? demanded the baron. Because it gives me pain all over, replied the figure. Sigh as much as you please, that does me good. The baron sighed mechanically at the mention of the word. The figure, brightening up again, added him the hunting knife with most winning politeness. It's not a bad idea, though, said the baron, feeling the edge of the weapon. A man killing himself because he has too much money. Pooh, said the apparition petulantly. No better than a man's killing himself because he has none or little. Whether the genius unintentionally committed himself in saying this, or whether he thought the baron's mind was so thoroughly made up that it didn't matter what he said, I have no means of knowing. I only know that the baron stopped his hand all of a sudden, opened his eyes wide, and looked as if quite a new light had come upon him for the first time. Why, certainly, said von Kultwethout, nothing is too bad to be retrieved, except empty coffers, cried the genius. Well, but they may be one day filled again, said the baron. Scolding wives, snarled the genius. Oh, they may be made quiet, said the baron. Thirteen children, shouted the genius. Can't all go wrong, surely, said the baron. The genius was evidently growing very savage with the baron for holding these opinions all at once, but he tried to laugh it off and said if he would let him know when he had left off joking he should feel obliged to him. But I am not joking. I was never farther from it, remonstrated the baron. Well, I am glad to hear that, said the genius, looking very grim, because a joke, without any figure of speech, is the death of me. Come, quit this dreary world at once. I don't know, said the baron, playing with the knife. It's a dreary one, certainly, but I don't think yours is much better, for you have not the appearance of being particularly comfortable. That puts me in mind, what security have I, that I shall be any the better for going out of the world after all, he cried, starting up. I never thought of that. Dispatch, cried the figure, gnashing his teeth. Keep off, 
said the baron. I'll brood over miseries no longer, but put a good face on the matter and try the fresh air and the bears again, and if that don't do, I'll talk to the baroness soundly <laughs> and cut the von Zwillinghausen's dead. With this, the baron fell into his chair and laughed so loud and boisterously that the room rang with it. The figure fell back a pace or two, regarding the baron meanwhile with a look of intense terror, and when he had ceased, caught up the stake, plunged it violently into his body, uttered a frightful howl, and disappeared. Von Kuhlwitt without never saw it again. Having once made up his mind to action, he soon brought the baroness and the von Swillinghausens to reason, and died many years afterwards, not a rich man that I am aware of, but certainly a happy one, leaving behind him a numerous family who had been carefully educated in bear and boar hunting under his own personal eye. And my advice to all men is that if ever they become hipped and melancholy from similar causes, as very many men do, they look at both sides of the question, applying a magnifying glass to the best one, and if they still feel tempted to retire without leave, that they smoke a large pipe and drink a full bottle first, and profit by the laudable example of the Baron of Grogsvig. This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you've enjoyed this vintage episode of The Baron of Grogsvig by Charles Dickens. We've got more classic fiction by Agatha Christie, E.M. Forster, P.G. Woodhouse, and others at ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com. Click on over and check it out. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me every week and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper. <laughs>